Donna. And I'm Carrie. And we are Paranormal Chicks. Episode 144. You want to know what that butthole Colby did to me at dinner tonight? What? He said, ooh, guess what? The weather's going to be Thursday, so which would be Christmas Eve. Well, next Thursday, because it's Christmas Eve. Sorry. Okay. Uh, he goes, it's going to be really cold with a chance of snow. And I said, oh, my God, please, 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 please. Like, literally crossed my fingers and went, please, 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 please. And he said, in Washington, D.C. <laughs> you motherfucker! <laughs> oh, my God. Well, pew-pew on that or poo-poo, whatever you say. Uh, I want a white Christmas so no, bad. go somewhere else. I mean, it was funny as fuck. Yeah. But I was still like, you motherfucker. Well, update. I still haven't watched Selena. The saga continues. Yes. We were so worried. I know. I know. Edge of your seats. I know. But it's because I got a free trial for HBO, and I started watching Euphoria, and it has Zendaya in it. I don't know. And I was enthralled, so I had to watch the whole season. It's only 10 episodes, but I don't know why, but I kept falling asleep during it. And it wasn't because it wasn't good. It was just like when I was watching it, I guess. And some of the music just like lulled me to sleep. But 10 out of 10 would recommend. Also, life hack, if you are single and it's COVID, so you haven't been able to mingle and you have something to put together and you have to do it yourself and the thing is big, like a console table, but you have small arms and a big belly and so you can't just like easily pick it up and you don't want to scratch your floors, but it's like, I mean... It's longer than a normal thing, and it's wider than you thought it was going to be, but whatever. I was like, how do I get this from the living room to my bedroom? How, Marley? How? And I used her toys on two of the legs, because I was like, they're basically moving pads. Like, hello? (laughs) And she was trying to bite them the whole time. I was like, no, bitch, I'm using them. But it was perfect. So life hack right there. You by yourself, you don't need anyone. You don't need a man's. You got it. If you got a dog, you got it. So, I mean, could you just use like a blanket? Yeah, but why you want to put a blanket on the ground? Well, I mean, they, you don't have a dog. Okay, get, get mad about it. <laughs> I'm protecting the ones who don't have dogs. We are inclusive here. Mm-hmm. Mm. including the new Patreoners. Oh, God, shit. man, we are killing these transitions. Oh, like transition lenses? <laughs> I mean, no shade, the sun. The glasses are <laughs> shaded from the sun. <laughs> All right, get on with it. <laughs> Welcome to the Crevenati, Natalie B. from Florida. Catherine D. from Maryland. Lisa S. from Minnesota. Sammy N. from Ohio. Mandy B. from Illinois. Beth O. from Pennsylvania. Karen T. from California. And Rachel R. from Utah. Thank y'all so much for joining the Creepinati. If you want an episode shout out, if you want all the extra bonus content they're getting, if you want to get in a secret Facebook group that's not a cult, head on over to patreon.com slash the APC podcast. I mean, it is called the Creepinati, though. I'm just saying. But it's not a cult. (laughs) That's what a cult would say. It's not a cult. All right. Well, I'm going back to paranormal. But, you know, we always have to do a little background. And by a little, I mean a lot. Picture it. Spring City, Pennsylvania, 1908. 
We all know from past episodes and just history in general that society has always hated and feared people who were different. And if they didn't know, quote, what to do with them, they found a solution. And more often than not, that solution was a mental institution. You say that like that's a past experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, what we're talking about today is the Pennhurst State School and Hospital, which was originally known as Eastern Pennsylvania State Institution for the Feeble-Minded and Epileptic. I mean, I feel like they could have shortened the name a little bit. (laughs) Fucking mouthful. Right? Could you imagine writing out a monthly check to that place? (laughs) What what name was, what part of the name was on? Right? Well, and you know, this was very popular because it's just more polite for society if individuals who have developmental disabilities, if they are set apart from the quote-unquote common folk, and they say it's for the individual's gain because they get privacy and protection, so they're sent off to these institutions that end up being their own kind of city and community, which we know. Yeah, I'm sure they really do get fucking protection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and I have no idea if this is PC or not. So you tell me, Carrie. But what kept coming up in my mind was separate but equal. And that phrase pisses me off so fucking much. And it makes me want to rip the person's throat out who says it. Because it's never okay and it's never right. And differences do not make anyone less human or less valuable to society. And if anything, being a bigot does. No, I get what you're saying. You're saying, fuck them. They're trying to say that they are trying to do separate but equal. But really, they're fucking assholes. And that's not a thing. So fuck you. Yeah. Good try trying to church up your fucking bigotry and assholiness. (laughs) Yes. Okay, so in November of 1908, Pennhurst opened and was designed to house around 500 patients. And let me guess, they got 6,000 in. (laughs) Basically, immediately overcrowded. But do you know why? Because orphans, criminals, and immigrants also became residents there. Because anyone who was a blemish to society was pushed in the closet, basically. Quote, unquote. Uh Uh-huh. Blemish. Mm Mm-hmm. Because an orphan, a criminal, and an immigrant... An immigrant. ...are all the same. Right. Mm-hmm. What a fucking fucky... I, like, I can't even... I don't even have the words. Oh, just wait. Because this is going to make your blood boil because it made mine. Just the verbiage. I mean, I'm already on boil. I mean, uh-huh. you're going to put me on fucking super boil? Oh, yeah. So, in 1913, the Commission for the Care of the Feeble-Minded was appointed and basically said that people who had disabilities were, quote, unfit for citizenship <laughs> and, quote, posed a menace to the peace. Okay. So, basically, what they said is hey, these institutions are great because this way they can't they can't reproduce with others and can't further be a blemish on society. So they were trying to like sterilize populations of people. Well, moving on, like I mentioned before, it was its own city. Like many of these institutions were, it grew to be more than 30 buildings. All were connected via underground tunnels. 
There is also a power plant, a farm, a barbershop, firehouse, a morgue, and a graveyard. And all of this was on 1,400 acres. Shit. Yeah. And any needs that they couldn't meet themselves were supplied by a railway line that connected to the city. So there really wasn't any interaction between the quote-unquote city folk, the normal folk, and people in the institution. Did the employees live on the property too, like some of the places, or do you know? No, they didn't. It wasn't like the tuberculosis places. How do I know that? It'll come up in a minute. Well, when you got to Pennhurst, you were grouped into different categories. Very general, but it was about mental aptitude, that kind of thing. Well, you were either listed as an imbecile or insane. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, okay. Yeah. Um, and physically, you were either epileptic or healthy. Okay. So you could be a, well, I was going to say rocket scientist, but I mean, it's 1908. <laughs> uh, but a rocket scientist, but because you came over from the fucking Philippines, you're in this facility because you're an immigrant. Mm-hmm. So... Are you an imbecile or a, what was the other one? Insane. Insane. Hmm. I guess you'd go with insane. Yeah. Because you're smart. Uh-huh. Huh. Isn't that so, like. Uh, That's so fucked up. That's so fucked up. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I, mm. Well, by 1946, there were seven physicians for over 2,000 patients and there was a list of a thousand people waiting for admission, but there was no room. But by the mid sixties, Penhurst housed close to twenty eight hundred people, so they seemed to find that room. And just remember, most of these patients were children. Like, just keep that in mind. And again, we're in the mid sixties, and because it was a state school, they had to make do with what they were given. So. Only about 200 of the people there were in any kind of recreational program that would help improve their condition, be it education, art, like any therapy at all. Only 200 of 2,800, if they even needed it, you know, like whatever. And even though some patients were high-functioning and could definitely improve their condition if they had the right care. Right. But, like, their budget didn't come close to covering their operational cost. I mean, nor do they now, but Mm -hmm. go ahead. Only nine medical doctors and 11 teachers, who none of them had special education training, so to man 2,800 residents. It was doomed. And it continued... To be set up to fail, and worst of all, to fail its residents. Yes, primarily the residents, but also the employees. Like, that's not fair to them either, because you are setting them up to fail because they can't do their best work either. Right. Even if they are good employees with good intentions, with good hearts, with good skills, you are working them to the bone. You're working them under the most stressful and sparse conditions with probably the longest hours, with the highest caseload, with the highest stress load, with the highest all the things, and eventually they're going to crack. Everybody mm-hmm. does. 
Yeah, later on, I'll talk about someone who kind of addresses that. But at the same time, what some of the staff do, it's not forgivable. Oh, under, fuck no. You know. Oh, fuck no. But yes, they were set up to fail, and that's not okay. No. And I'm talking like basic, poor institutional care of, oh, they didn't get their diaper changed on time. Oh, they haven't had a bath yet today. That's still really terrible care mm-hmm. and should be addressed and is abhorrent. Yeah. That what you're about to tell me is a whole nother fucking level and is what I said's unacceptable. What yeah. you're about to say is like a whole nother like we're in like a whole nother galaxy. Yeah. Your story. Yeah. Well, I got some information on some of that shitty shit that went on and it was from a federal court case, Halderman versus Penthurst State School and Hospital. And I want to tell you about one of the plaintiffs. Like, she was the original plaintiff, and then it became a class action lawsuit. Her name is Terry Lee Halderman, and she was admitted to Penhurst in 1966 at the age of 12. She spent 11 years there, but she did not flourish as her parents believed she would, or as it was promised that she would. But what she did do was regress. Prior to her admission to Penhurst, Terry Lee could say Dada, Mama, Noi Noi for No, Baba for Goodbye, and Nana for Grandmother. And now she no longer speaks. She also got a fractured jaw, fractured fingers, a fractured toe, and numerous lacerations, cuts, scratches, bites, and lost several teeth. All of these were results of attacks or accidents. Terry Lee's medical records had over 40 reported injuries, and that's reported. Then there's another plaintiff, Charles Denolfi, and he was admitted to Penhurst when he was nine years old. And his sister, Dorothy, testified that whenever she or his family visited him, he would always have some type of bandage on. When he was at Penhurst, he lost an eye. And the physician, an eye, an eye, and the physician told his parents that Charles slipped while taking a shower, and hit the spigot with his eye. And then the sight in his remaining eye was impaired due to the injury as well. And he only has a few teeth remaining. His nose has been battered, and it's like, oh, I guess those are all his fault too. Like everything, mm-hmm. all of these injuries, his fault. I mean. How do you, like, bonk your eye, get, like, while you're in the shower, and then it affect your other eye? Right. How's that even happen? Yeah. Another plaintiff, Robert Height, he was admitted September of 1974. He was nine years old, and he was placed on a ward with 45 other residents. His parents visited him two and a half weeks after his admission, and they found him badly bruised. His mouth had, like, cuts all over. He was heavily drugged and to the point where he could not even recognize his own mother. Mm. And also, on that visit, they witnessed at least half of those residents on that ward walking around naked. The others were partially dressed. And sadly, during this short period of time, two and a half weeks, Robert had lost skills that he had possessed prior to his admission. His parents were like, nope, 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 we out of here. And they removed him that day. 
And his mom commented that she wouldn't leave a dog in conditions like that. How bad does it have to be for your skills to regress like that? Like, it's almost like a trauma response. Like, yeah. not, like, that, not, no, it is. It's a trauma response. Yeah. It's so sad. So many, like, there were so many plaintiffs. I, I can't even cover them all, you know? But so many had injuries, smelled of urine, showed severe regression intellectually, physically. Uh, Nancy Beth Bowman was 10 when she went to Penhurst in 61, and she was placed in seclusion for multiple days straight. She was also abused by the staff. Her mother said that, quote, Nancy Beth will be scarred for the rest of her life. Fuck them. Yeah, for something beyond her control, you know, and nothing against her. Like, nothing wrong with her. Ugh. So that lawsuit also had some other shit, and so I'm going to include some of that. How I know that they didn't have to stay there, because there would be no psychologist on duty on the weekends and at night, period. Not on call or anything. So if someone had an emergency, you know, like, if some patient needed an emergency treatment, anything, oh, well, wait till Monday. Seems reasonable. Right? And because there was so much understaffing, they had to use measures to control the patients. And those measures were restraining them however they needed to, and that was physical or chemical. Again, they could be placed in a seclusion room like I mentioned before. And then there was also one 18-year-old patient who spent six consecutive days in 1974 when they assaulted another resident. Or they could be tied to their bed or chair, and those durations varied. Most of the time, the residents would be covered in their own feces by the time someone would come back and check on them. The court case cites one extreme example of a female resident in 1976 who was restrained for, these are a lot of numbers, but like you just have to think about this, who was restrained for 651 hours and five minutes in June, 720 hours in August, for 674 hours and 20 minutes in September, and for 647 hours and five minutes in October, restrained to her bed. It also stated that this resident was extremely self-destructive, wherein she totally blinded herself. (gasps) So... That's why they restrained her. However, no one checked on her. You know, like, Mm -hmm. again, it's still inhumane. Right. Also, she wasn't enrolled in any occupational therapy until a year later in 97. They said that once she began therapy, she was pretty successful and was then able to be out of restraints for as much as four hours a day. And then they argued, had therapy started sooner, her self-inflicted injuries could have been avoided or at least not as severe. True. hmm And for chemical, they would be given tranquilizers. And while this is so shitty, it wasn't like as a treatment, like, oh, let me calm you down. Like, okay, you need a moment. You know, like, not that that's good, but like, okay, no, no, no. It was like, I'm going to control you. Yeah. And like we talked about regression, the environment was not encouraging to learn new skills. They had a class for toilet training. However, even if the person graduated from that program, they might not be able to practice or like put it into daily use. 
So they would lose that newly learned skill. In the lawsuit, it stated that most toilet areas did not have towels, soap, or toilet paper, and that the bathroom facilities were often filthy and in a state of disrepair. Gross. And I named a lot of these injuries before, like, it's like 40 injuries on record, blah, 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 to Mm -hmm. these people. But it's obviously they were left unsupervised for the most part. So there were injuries to residents by other residents and through self-abuse. In January of 1977 alone, there were 833 minor and 25 major injuries reported. 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 But there was also abuse by staff, like I mentioned. And in 1976, one resident was raped by a staff person. Oh, my God. Well, I find it hard to believe that's the first time that happened. Oh, for sure. Oh, for sure. Either way, that's so fucked up. Yeah, for sure. And because most of these residents are nonverbal and Mm -hmm. everything else, you know, like, fuck y'all. One resident was badly bruised when a staff member hit him with a set of keys. Then another staff member threw a resident several feet across a room. Then one resident was hit by a staff member with a shackle belt. What the fuck? Yeah. Another cruel thing I found was that patients who were aggressive and would bite other patients and staff. Carrie... They would get all their teeth removed. (gasps) That is my personal hell. Yes. This happened so frequently that years after the place was closed, when people would be in the tunnels, they would find loads of teeth. Oh, my God. And it was like you got one reprimand of biting, and the second time, it was your whole fucking mouth being pulled. Like, oh, my God. That's not right. No. Like, that's not right at all. And, I mean, just from hearing all of that, you can tell there was trauma, there was pain, suffering on the daily, and they say it was so loud on the day-to-day basis from patients screaming and wailing that many of the patients just stopped speaking. Again, a trauma response. Yeah, They said that a lot of the residents were like just desperate for human contact, that they would try to get attention any way they could. And if that was injuring themselves, they would. If that was smearing themselves with their own feces and everything to hopefully get a bath, they would just to get some kind of human interaction. And even that wasn't guaranteed. Bill Baldini was this badass dude in the 1960s. He was an up-and-coming reporter dude, and he got himself a little five-episode expose on Pinhurst. It was titled Suffer the Little Children because all of the residents, no matter if they were 70, whatever, they were called children. What? Yeah. I, I don't know why. I just feel like that's demeaning. I don't know. Well, the first segment, like... It opens up with him, and I was like, Bill, you the man. Like, call them on their boo shit, Bill. Seriously. So it opens up, and he's, like, narrating over the people, you know. 
And he, this is a quote. He said, we ship them 25 miles out of town and we forget them while they decay from neglect. Damn. Mm-hmm. Like I mentioned, he was the person, he said, hey, look, the administrators, the workers, they're really not at fault of their own, really, because we put them there to fail. And he said, the children, as they're called, are rotting in their dreadful plate, and they can thank society for forsaking them. We have all failed them. And it's like, yeah, at this point. And it's so easy to say, oh, I didn't know that was happening, because we are all in our little bubbles, mm-hmm. you know? But then he went further on to point out that the local zoo, their animals were treated better than the patients. Mm-hmm. More money was spent on food and care on average for the animals than the patients at Penhurst. The zoo spent $7.15 each day for each animal. At Penhurst, only $5.90. And most of that went to administration cost and everything. And I think it was like only like 70 cents or something went to like the well-being mm-hmm. of the patient. And he was like, I never see overcrowding in the in the zoos, but people like people were on the floor. People didn't have assigned beds. People, you know, he was like, these are humans. And people will get matter mm-hmm. about the way the animals are treated at the zoo than at a place like that. Yes. While I understand those animals cannot advocate for themselves, but most neither can people. most of those residents. Yes. It's it's so true. Like if that headline like if that was a headline, people would be like, Oh man. But if it was the other way around, it would be holy fuck. You know, like I'm guilty of that too. Mm-hmm. There was this one patient, and Bill asked him, like, if you could have anything in the world, what would you want? Anything. It could be all the money, anything. And he said, just to get out of Penhurst. He said, even if you can have all the money in the world, out of everything, he said, to leave here, to get out of Penhurst. He's that, like, institutionalized that he truly cannot see beyond those walls other than I just have to get out of this place. Yeah. I have no needs other than out of this. Yeah. Because what will money do if he's still there? Like he can't even see that money could get him out of there. Yeah. Because there's nothing outside of there because he has to get out of there first. Yeah. Bill goes on to talk about when he walked into a room that had two staff members and 80 children who ranged in ages from six months to five years old. And they were all sitting or laying in metal cribs. But he described them as metal cages. And he's perplexed to see some of the older kids in cribs. And so he's like, hey, why are they not up walking? What's going on? And one of the attendants informed him that they did not have enough staff to set up the mattresses on the floor for the children to learn to crawl. Mm. And that's the only reason. So the children simply remained in their cages without learning how to crawl and therefore walk. 
oh my god, what that does to them developmentally. Yeah. And so for however long, not even a full day, that would take for them to do that years. I mean, literally the rest of their life as it relates to handwriting, attention, communication, coordination, literally everything. Uh, Yeah. It, oh gosh. Then there was a segment that included an interview with one of the now infamous doctors on location. And his name, drumroll please. Okay, my dr- I gotta work on my drumroll. You really do. Dr. Jesse Fear. Okay. I mean, yes. Mm-hmm. He was meant to be a, like a villain. Yes. A villain in something, like, honestly. And he had to be a doctor. Like, Mr. Fear, eh, nah. No, he is kin only to Dr. Evil. <laughs> yes. They went to the same medical school. They grew up together. <laughs> they said, you know what? We're going to be doctors together. <laughs> well, he is so nonchalant about every fucking thing. And Bill sits down with him, and he asks him to explain some of the ways he's enacted punishment on some of the residents. He just blankly said that he had punished some residents who acted out by, quote unquote, downgrading them a little bit. So what he would do is he would put said resident in a lower functioning ward so it would, quote, offend their dignity. Oh, my God. He is also quoted as saying, what we're trying to do is degrade him to a certain extent amongst his fellows here. They make fun of him then for a little while afterwards, but I don't think there's anything inhumane about it or anything, if that's a word. Like, you're a fucking doctor. Again, though, Dr. Fear, but you're a fucking doctor. What is this inhumane word you speak of? Right? And I love how he just thinks that it's just degrading for the person like that's being, a.k.a. punished. Like, you're saying that... Putting them on the lower functioning ward, which those people, that's no fault of their own, is like a punishment. And now they know that. So if someone like Billy Bob comes down, they're like, they know that then. Mm -hmm. And like it's only inhumane for just that, just that window of punishment. Uh, okay. Right. Well, then Dr. Fear goes on to tell about another form of punishment. And he said that there was this resident, Ernie, who had allegedly hit another resident and left a large welt on the back of his head. So Dr. Fear, being all big and bad, was going to put the fear into Ernie. Had to do it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I see what you did there. Mm -hmm. But he threatened Ernie. And he was like, quote, you touch one of my boys again and I'm going to take care of you myself. So Ernie's like, don't fucking touch me, dickwad. Not a direct quote. But, you know, I mean, come on. Well, Dr. Fear is like, well, before this day's out, you're going to see what I can fucking do. I mean, kind of a direct quote, but not. And what he did was he asked one of his staff members, what is the most painful injection I can give Ernie that will not cause damage, but will cause pain? Not just, like, pain, like, ow, that needle hurt, but, like, no, 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 internal pain of whatever, like, whatever reaction to the body, like, whatever. What will do that that won't, like, you know, kill them or, you know, I guess be 
able to be seen later. I have no idea. And he did that. I feel like that's something that the good doctor should have fucking known. Right? Maybe it's because he did actually go to medical school with Dr. Evil. (laughs) Maybe. Well, he did do it to Ernie. And he could be seen on camera. And he fucking, like, has that shit-eating grin. And he's like, he really hit the ceiling over that one. Wow. Like, oh, you don't say. And and he's and he's a bully. Cool, 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 cool. You know, and I'm like, fighting violence with violence. Then cool since never, but awesome. Wow. So here's something to go back to that whole, they were doomed because the system failed them. Bill was talking to the business manager, Elmer McSurdy, and he recalled some of the difficulties with funding. And there was this one issue with requesting bras for the residents. And of course, it's bras. Of course. I just have to point that out. But his order for bras was canceled, and he was then asked to justify the order. Okay. So he then was like, uh, insert self-evident? Like, it's a fucking bra. Right. And then his request was again returned and was like, more justification needed. Thank you. So then he was like, one of the doctors, can you write a fucking justification that, like, women need fucking bras? Uh, it's a bra. Right? And so after all this shit, you know, taking away people's time that, you know, like, the doctors didn't have time. No one had fucking time for this. They never received the bras. Wow. And it's like, cool, cool. That's like, that's literally the same as not providing underwear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an undergarment. But then probably get mad if there's any type of like sexualization around one of the resident's breasts. Yeah. Well, it's like, strap those babies up in an over-shoulder boulder holder. <laughs> exactly. A little more about the documentary itself, and then we can move on. But Bill said that his news director had been listening to some of the shit he had been saying, like, this is what I saw. This is what I saw. And he was like, yeah, that's shitty for sure. But he kind of thought Bill was like, you know, kind of exaggerating, like, Mm -hmm. it can't really be that bad, that bad. But he was like, no, when he saw the footage, He knew he wasn't exaggerating one bit. And he was like, no, you might have actually been downplaying it a little bit. Like, it was that bad. Later, when Bill was being interviewed by the Institute on Disabilities at Temple University, he said that the conditions were so bad at Pennhurst, his sound and camera operators, like, they wanted to leave immediately. We're like, actually, we're cool not to do this. Like, let's not be on this assignment. But he was like, look, I'll just give y'all lots of breaks. So instead of filming for like one long day, they would film for five days or so just to have enough rest so they wouldn't be wanting to leave immediately. Well, Pennhurst closed its doors on December 9th, 1987 due to that lawsuit and everything I mentioned before. And when it closed, it just abandoned everything as it was The patient's clothes, toys, furniture, medical equipment, all just laying there. And so naturally, a place such as Pennhurst that's been called Hell on Earth and the Shame of Pennsylvania is destined to be haunted by the spirits of patients who suffered and died there. 
There, of course, have been numerous reports of the normal slamming doors, footsteps, but also even vomiting in empty rooms. Yes. Like vomiting, really? But um, if, you know, you were in feces all day and the smell there. I mean, I'd vomit too. Yeah. I was like, I mean, it's not a far stretch. Uh, mm. That's a lot of vomiting, though, if it's going to be happening in the afterlife. <laughs> Wait. Oh, that would be my word. Oh, to have to vomit. Like, I hate to vomit in real world. It'd be my normal. Wake up, vomit. <laughs> it really would be. You'd if be my like, ghost had to wake up before 7 a.m., it's going to vomit. Right? Like, it's a given. Honestly. Man, whoever has you haunting them, they're going to love you. I'm Honestly, I'm a peach. <laughs> <laughs> Look, you're going to even try not to haunt them, but you just knock into everything. <laughs> so, be like, oops, sorry. Sorry about that. Didn't mean to do that. I'm literally going to be the ghost form of Urkel. (laughs) (laughs) Did not see that coming. (laughs) Well, okay. (laughs) All right. Because there's so many fucking buildings on this campus, it's hard to, like, go through all of them. But the Mayflower is the main one. It has a lot of action shadow people have been seen here multiple times evps the whole gamut there's this lady tamara lawrence who worked in the mayflower building in 2011 when it became a haunted attraction which i'll talk more about in a minute but she wrote a book about her time there and like just some stories she had picked up some experiences and whatever but she chronicles about like four main ghosts in the mayflower building and one of them is Howie, and he's thought to play with a Fisher-Price airplane, which is still there. And he does not like people touching the airplane. He has violently shoved a person, Lynn, who was handling the plane to just move it to, to make it where people didn't, like, kick it or whatever. He, like, shoved her. There was another time that there was a gust of cold air around her as she was touching it, and she said it was like an invisible bucket of ice had been dumped on her. And then the second one is a shadow man, and he's usually seen in the common room, and he just kind of lurks around in the common room. And this might be the entity that the psychic medium Tyler Evans of Ghost Hunts USA calls a shoelace man. But this could honestly be a completely different spirit. But the Shoelace Man is an entity that Tyler believes helps other spirits cross over. The first time Tyler encountered Shoelace Man, he said that the spirit wore shoes, but it didn't have any laces. And they didn't really go into this, but I'm pretty sure it's because that would be like suicide prevention on the state school's part. I mean, yeah, it makes total sense. But every time that he encounters him, he, like, offers up his shoelaces as, you know, like, again, an offering. Can I say the same word twice? But also, let me insert here that Ghost Hunts USA is familiar with this place because they handle the Halloween tours of the Mayflower building yearly. So as a sign of respect, Tyler tells the entity that they're in the building and they want to go up to the third floor and they would like his permission and protection. And so he said that like 
He doesn't feel that this spirit or this shadow person is dangerous at all. He really feels like he is a caretaker there. You know, he feels like he was a patient who had been there for so long that he was able to, you know, roam freely and wasn't chained to his bed and wasn't there, you know, and was able to help care for the other residents. And then another spirit is a little girl, and she's seen on the second floor mostly, and she loves to dart in and out of corners. And so she kind of makes you play, you know, like tricks on your mind kind of thing. Like, did I just see something? Nod and ju- wait, did I just see it again? You know, that, that kind of thing. And she's a little girl, so it's kind of lower to the ground and harder to see, but people have encountered her. And then there's a nurse, and so it's a nurse dressed in period, like, nurse uniform, has her hair done, and she has been known to attack people wherein they feel like they've been uh, stabbed with a needle, like, injected with a needle. And some of them will have, like, a pinprick or, like, a pin mark, like, days later, one of the former tour guides and photographer of Pinhurst, again, with the whole Halloween tours, Melissa June Daniels, she said that there was a male guest and he was like, you know, one of those bigger, taller, like 6'3", like burly men. And he was on the third floor and he was so disturbed by his experience that he was like, can someone walk me out like right now? Wow. Because he claimed that he felt pressure on his neck. And, like, when he was like, what the fuck? He saw a ghost, like, lunging at him. Like, with the hands looking like they were trying to strangle him. And, like, he had felt the pressure there. So he was like, nope, mm -mm, that's all I need to know. He noped the fuck up out of there. Right? Then I found on the Raven and the Black Cat WordPress website, they had went there to the Mayflower building and... When they were in the back stairwell, the ripped window screen had shook when they asked the spirits to play with them. So they were like, eh, it could be a fluke because, you know, it's like ripped and it's a window screen. So it could have been a gust of wind, whatever. Well, they asked for a repeat and happened again. And it happened again two more times after, like, after they asked each time. And then they had another experience on the third floor with a ball, and again, they asked, like, does anyone want to play? And they said sometimes it felt as though, like, the bowl, the bowl, as the ball, like, rolled right out of their grip, but then sometimes they could feel the ball, like, pushing into their hand, like someone was literally playing with them. And then another time on the third floor, uh, there was a closet door, and it seemed to be locked shut. And John had everyone take a turn trying to open the door. And one by one, they knocked on the door and was like, hey, will you let me in? Tried to open it. Nothing. Well, then when this person pulled on the handle, they felt the door start to open. And so, you know, you can kind of feel that release. And then suddenly it was just violently pulled back shut. And so... Throughout the day, some other members had a similar experience, and then there was, like, some banging noise going on from within that closet later, too. I would have been like, nope, don't need to open that. Mm Mm-hmm. And then also there's two other 
big ghost in the Mayflower building. One is they believe Dr. Fear is there, instilling fear from beyond the grave. Had to do it again. They've heard several reports that like people have encountered the doctor. And one person said that they had like a really strange EVP. So a lot of the patients, so they had that graveyard and like, you know, everything, but a lot of the patients' bodies were never accounted for. And so they were like, you know, they had to be buried somewhere else other than that graveyard, like because of something, you know, maybe his punishment's going a little too wrong, whatever. Well, when the when they encountered the ghost of Dr. Fear and they asked, like, what did you do with the bodies? Did you do anything with the bodies? They had a response that said, I burned them. Oh, my God. Yeah. And then there's a spirit called the king or someone has gotten into EVP to call him David. He's located in the basement of the Mayflower, and he's known to be rude and sarcastic. One of the Ghost Hunt USA staff members, like, he will call her a bitch, call her, you know, like, all these names to try to get her out of there. Like, he does not like her for some reason, but he does tend to like a lot of females. Tyler Evans, again, the psychic medium for Ghost Hunts USA, when they were doing their uh, hunt for Destination America, he was walking past the basement, and he was like, hold on. And he said there was a man who was just grinning at him. And so they started there. And when they asked why he was there, he wouldn't answer. But Tyler said there were little soft voices who he thought to be children. And he said that the man was just like grinning at him and not smiling. But the children were like kind of whispering. And they told Tyler that he had sexually abused them. And again, that's all alleged because we don't know. Yeah. But this spirit is said to be like 6'2", really thin. And again, he seems to really respond to ladies. And the younger, the better, it seems, which makes sense given the whole pedo thing. And like I said, that one staff member, he hates. And so like every time she goes down, he like tries to ruin the tour for like, you know, just calls her all kinds of names, like get out, get out, get out, get out. Like he does not want her in that basement. Some other buildings, real quick, is the Quaker building. Numerous shadows, you know, they manifest, but then they dissipate whenever they want to. You know, it's just like no rhyme or reason. One has been a young female child, and she has long black hair and kind of like hunched over and like long dangling arms. And, you know, she that what it's reminding me of is the ring or whatever. Like, mm-hmm. ugh. And what they say is, like, she will, like, kind of just peer around obstacles and, like, corners and, like, like, peer up over stuff and which is even creepier. Mm-hmm. There's a rocking chair that has moved without anyone being near it. Again, doors slamming on their own. There was an investigator that was shoved from behind hard enough that it left a red mark on the small of the investigator's back. Another investigator was scratched on the arm and was it anywhere close to like walls or anything? So it wasn't a carry accident. <laughs> Just like 
objects just being like thrown around like a pry bar, some just like unknown objects, but like some brass fixture, just shit like that going like, uh, what was that? And you go in there and it's like a pry bar on the ground. It's like that wasn't there before. But yeah, one time a psychic medium, Sharon Pugh, she said that she felt several energies there in that building. And one was either a demonic force or in a past life just wasn't a very nice person. Then in the Limerick building, there's been an apparition of another nurse and she's been seen by several people, uh, multiple EVPs in the admin building, multiple voices, you know, being heard, EVPs. And one time an EVP caught something that sounded like a toilet flushing and it had no running water or bathroom fixtures to have a toilet flush. And now on to... Zach and his boys, of course, they had to go there and see what was going on for themselves. And this was like season three premiere. So I watched the episode, of course. And I just have to say, it being season three, this was premium bedazzled boo realness. Like the black Jinko jeans and shit. Like him in his early days. And it just cracks me up anyway. But before the investigation even started, a banging sound is heard by Zach and Nick outside of the building. And when they went inside, there's a large desk that's found tipped over. And there's like fresh dragging marks seen under it. So it's like, oh yeah, no, that just happened because there's there's dust all around it. And that should have been dusty too. But something just flipped that over. And during the investigation, they get all the, you know, normal things like I have mentioned before, door slamming, footsteps, they hear breathing, they hear, you know, a female voice, they have different bangs, distant screams. Um, Some of the EVPs were like, go away, hello, get out. Then there's this one time on the investigation that there's a rock thrown at Zach. And so they're like, who did that? Who did that? And one of the EVPs says, the girl did. Damn, tattletale motherfucker. Right? And then there's like this misty kind of, I don't know, mist. (laughs) And it heads towards Zach. And you can kind of, I don't know, he says he can feel it grab his pocket. Okay, so I'm going to end with this, though. Because there's multiple things. Like, so there's so many things. And it all kind of just goes back like, The king or the basement entity doesn't like girls. He, you know, or he does. It's inconsistent, you know, but maybe he only likes young girls. Maybe it is true because he seems to really be attached to like some younger investigators who's like dad's an investigator. This girl named Jamie, she had been there for forever. And so he really is drawn to her, but older investigators, he wants to get out and You know, so it's like shit like that. It just keeps going on. So I don't want to just keep going like, oh, this different crew had the same thing happen. This different crew had the same thing happen. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to end with this. And this is just kind of like we know bad shit happened to everyone there. We know that energy lives on. And, you know, we hope that that energy and their spirits can find peace But they did make that Halloween attraction. And some people have really posed the question, is it wrong to have this as an attraction? Because it's like a fake attraction. It's not just like a walkthrough. Like, yes, there is that haunted walkthrough 
which is like, this is what happened. And let's see if we can find ghosts. That's one thing. But then they have different levels and it's like jump scares kind mm-hmm. of thing. And it's like, is it wrong for them to exploit mental patients as being scary? And, you know, I never thought of it as that. Like so many people, like the asylum and the blah, like I've been to one and it had an asylum and it's like a crazed patient, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, oh, wow, no, they were in like a psychiatric ward, but that doesn't like, they might be quote unquote crazy, but that doesn't mean that they're a killer or, okay, they're, the doctor's evil. (laughs) The doctor is Dr. Fear. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they will come back and be evil and, you know, all of that. And so this one person had said, like, can you imagine walking through and you having schizophrenia or any of anything that is a mental disorder and being like, is that what people see me as? And I just had never thought of that. And so that's my question to you. Well, yeah, it's wrong. It's one thing in, like, a haunted house to have, like, this, like, crazed patient as, like, a character. Why? I don't know. Because No, you that's really, what they're, I'm saying. Just, like, as this one person. But if, like, you're having, like, this whole haunted house at this place that, the like, the whole concept of the haunted house is this hospital that was this thing. And it's, like, the whole thing. Like, conceptually, the whole thing is it. I don't know. I feel like it's poking fun at some people who went through some really bad stuff. It's so hard because it's like, where do you draw the line then? Like, I mean, if you have like this crazy patient that's like was bit by a bionic spider, you know, and then went crazy in the hospital, like that's very different than yes. like, and they're dressed like as a patient than in someone who was like in a psychiatric facility, crazed patient is yeah. what I'm is is what I mean by having a patient, quote-unquote patient, in a haunted house Mm -hmm. and having a haunted house like this and the whole concept being this fucking real-life shit that happened. That's not okay. Yeah, I definitely agree with you on the second half. But you see what I'm saying, though? It's like, this is not even, like, a real thing. Yeah. The first thing I said. Yeah. But I feel... If they have like mental patients as a thing, there there's a whole theme, true, to it. You know, like, well, but some places though they have a bunch of different things in it anyway. You know what I mean? Every room may be a different theme. Every, you know, it's a bunch mm-hmm. of different things within one. You know, yeah. So that's kind of where I'm going. Well, what do y'all think? I mean, it's not okay to make fun of something traumatic and in the truest sense of the word traumatic, because we throw around this word triggering and, oh, that triggered me. And, oh, that, no, did that upset you? Did that sadden you? Is that what you're defining as, like, is that the emotion that you're feeling versus triggered, you know? Because that, this is truly a traumatic and horrific thing that these people live through. And how dare we make fun of it? Yeah. I don't know whether to be sad or mad, but I think you're going to just be sad with this story. Oh, great. Give me my tissues because you know I fucking cry. Well, you probably won't cry with this one. It's just it's just heartbreaking. <laughs> 
You know, but you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, it's not like, I know cry. What you mean. it's not cry sad. It's just like, God damn, you know? Yeah. We got a message on Facebook from Judy M who recommended this story to us. So thank you so much, Judy. Picture it. 2013, Norton Shores, Michigan. 25-year-old Jessica Haringa lives with her boyfriend, Dakota, and their three-year-old son. She works in an Exxon gas station supporting her family. She really wants to go back to school to get her degree in accounting, but Dakota wasn't working at the time. They only had one car. They even shared a cell phone. So it just wasn't the time for her to go back to school. She had to just do what she had to do and keep working at the gas station. She usually worked a late shift, like the 4 to like 11. I think the gas station closed at like 11, 1130. She always closed alone. And the gas station did not have CCTV footage because the owner said that he only lost about $3,000 in gas from like pumping and then driving away. So he says he's not going to spend $5,000 on installing a security system when he's only losing $3,000. But I'm like, okay, so if you're losing $3,000 every single year, why not spend $5,000 now? Oh, you know, and the safety of your employees. But cool, cool, cool. That doesn't matter. You know, and your customers too, so cool. Yeah, for sure. And okay, just go a cheaper route for right now. Like, fuck. I mean, go up to Sam's and get some fucking Arlo cameras for 600 Yeah, not sponsored, though. No. <laughs> She's just looking at shit, I guess. <laughs> I mean, go to my wish list on Amazon. <laughs> but seriously, that pisses me off. Like, if you were working there, if your kids were working there, if your wife was working there, you would want security. And the owner, like, specifically said that he hired pretty girls to work because he said that it made the customers want to keep coming back because the store was not far from a factory. And so he wanted the customers to keep coming there. Yeah. It makes sense. So have fucking CCTV. Yep. Like I literally wrote down, cool, bro. Your employees mean nothing. <laughs> Who are you, me? I was going to say, call me Donna. Jessica was special to her customers though. Like I said, they were the gas station was by a factory, so they did get regulars. You know, people would come in before work, after work, that kind of thing. So there were people who would come specifically on days that they knew that Jessica would be working because they liked her so much. Did they have that good gas station pizza? Because I got this good gas station pizza close to my house, and this one girl does it the best. I only go when I know it's her. See, she's your Jessica. Mm-hmm. And just like your story last week, the guy who had his yogurt girl. One day on April 25th, 2013, one of the regulars was talking to Jessica and she was like, girl, you really need to be careful working this late. Like, this is so dangerous. I mean, there's no fucking cameras. It's late. You're the only one here. You're closing. Like, you really need to get your boyfriend to come just like hang out with you some, you know, whatever. Meanwhile, she's like, first of all, well, I don't know if she actually had this conversation, but I imagine that Jessica was like, uh, girl, we got a three-year-old at home. Like he's no, but anyway, but while they're talking, there's this other regular in there and he chimes in and he's like, oh, there's other customers that are like watching out for her too, which seems not that ominous, right? Like it seems like a, no, we got like, there's other cust like the customers look out for her. 
Okay, see, it seems ominous to you, right? But does it seem ominous to you because I'm telling you that story? No, that seems weird just because it's a gas station and not like... No, that it seems weird because it's a gas station to me. Okay, see, it didn't seem weird to me. Like, it seemed like, no, man, we got her back. Like, you know, we're watching out for her, too. You know, we take care of our own kind of thing. Yeah. But it bothered Jessica. Like, to her friend, Jessica literally shuddered. Like, it get she, like, like a, ooh. Like, yeah. Like, a, like physically, she saw her shudder. And her friend thought it was bizarre enough that she stuck around. Like, she was like, okay. That was a weird interaction. And so she checked out, went to her car and was like, no, man, that was really weird. And so she sat in her car and waited for the guy to check out and actually leave the gas station to make sure that he actually left. Like the interaction was so bizarre that she was like, "Mm, I need to make sure he actually leaves. Yeah. Well, and also I want to know like where he was in relation to like where they were. Like, obviously I get that Jessica was behind the counter. And her friend was up there, but like, how close was he to them? You yeah. know what I mean? Because it's like, if you are a stalker, you got that bionic ear, so you could hear like wherever you could have your head in the fucking cold, like in like the beer freezer, uh huh, and be like, oh no, we got we got her. Yeah, you know and it's what I like, mean? What the fuck? You weren't even yeah. Where'd you come from, sneaky sneaky? Right. Or you could be right up there and it's like, oh, you're in the conversation because you're like literally standing right behind her six feet apart. But you know what I mean? Yeah. So that also like has something to do with it with me too. But yeah, I don't know. It's just weird because, yeah, like if she hadn't asked someone to walk her out before or anything like that, like that's weird. Yeah. See, at first I just, I didn't think it was that Again, I just didn't find it that ominous. And I remember thinking, like, would I find that conversation bizarre? Well, one, had they not said that, you know, literally Jessica was like, you could tell it bothered her. And not in the, oh, God, that guy's just creepy. Like, you know, not in the, oh, he's so like, you know, but like in the, no, that was not okay. Well, just think about me. If I worked at a gas station, because, you know, I never meet a stranger like, if I said, oh, no, like, my customers got, like, I don't know, if, if we had that thing, you'd be like, be careful. Yeah. Like, don't trust them. Yeah. Don't do that. You know, you know what I mean? So yes, like, you're right. Yeah. If you put it in perspective, it's like, no, you can't trust them. You're like, so right. Yeah. On April 26th, 2016, Jessica goes into work and works her regular shift. Everything's normal. Her boyfriend comes up to see her at work. And remember how I said they only had one car. So I'm guessing because she drove to work. So I'm guessing he must have just gotten a ride from somebody. I don't know. Because she had the car. Some friends come by and hang out. While they're there, Jessica's outside kind of cleaning up around the pumps. And they see this silver van pull up. And Jessica talks to the driver like she knows him, but not like a friend. Like maybe it's probably somebody who she knows from the gas station, you know. They chat for just a second, and then they move on. The next thing we know happens is that at about 5 till 11, a customer comes in and, according to the cash register, buys a lighter. And again, according to the cash register, that is the last sale of the night, which means they are the last person to ever see Jessica again. 
Shortly after that last customer left, but still before closing, the manager drives by and notices a silver van out back. It kind of strikes her as odd because the doors out back are weird. Like, you can't get in from the back. You have to be let in. So the manager was like, okay, well, and also there's no pumps in the back. So she was like, is Jessica stealing? Like she thought like maybe somebody, you know, they drove the van around back and she's like unloading some stuff from the store. So she stops to just kind of watch and see what's happening with the van because if they're stealing, she's going to fucking bust them because she's the manager. As she's watching, she sees some movement around the van and... Honestly, the stuff I listen to, I listen to some a couple of podcasts and a couple of YouTube videos and stuff, and I don't really understand what happened at the van. Some stuff said that the way that the door handle was on the van, honestly, I didn't understand it. But basically, it was like the, they opened the back hatch on the van, did some adjusting, and then closed the back van door. And I'm talking like, like the trunk door. Mm-hmm. And then drove off with no sign of Jessica. The manager does get a look at the driver, but she doesn't recognize him. So she's like, well, I guess I was wrong. They weren't, you know, it wasn't Jessica stealing anything because, again, she's nowhere to be seen. Maybe they just, like, pulled in weird, you know? And so she goes on about her business. She didn't say that no one was in the store? No. Sus, but go ahead. Well, because, one, if she's focusing on the van, she's probably not looking at that. No, but if it goes off and she's like, oh, I wasn't right, like... If I would have, but see, if I was her and I would have looked back in the store, I'm like, oh, I don't see Jessica. And then I looked at the clock and I'm like, oh, she's probably like cleaning the bathroom or something. See, I'm paranoid, I guess. Yeah. And so I'd be like, sus, let me go see. Yeah. Because again, she knows that he hires pretty girls, doesn't have mm-hmm. all, you know what I mean? Like, you know, it's a skeevy situation. Yeah. But anyway, that's why I say it's sus, but go ahead. And of course, none of these times are like, Exact, exact, exact. But around 11.10, another customer who's a regular pulls up, and he goes to try to start pumping some gas. So, like, does his money at the pump, goes to start to do it, and the pump never, like, kicks on. So, like, whoever's inside didn't press their little button doohickey thing. So, he's like, all right, well, Jessica must be doing something. You know, I don't know. Clearly, my example this whole time is cleaning the bathroom. Apparently, she's got a lot of bathrooms to clean. Keep in mind, too, Jessica is good friends with her customers. Like I said, people wait to go wait for her shifts. You know, so they're like, oh, let me go in. Let me go see what's going on. Like, you know, like, let's let's just check this out. So he goes in and he's looking around, but there's no Jessica. And he's like, well, her car's here. Her purse is here because he can see it behind the counter. And he calls out for her and nothing. Jessica, are you cleaning the bathroom? It says a lot about me that that's where I think she is. Um, It's because you know where every bathroom is. You could have a blog. I mean, those blogs exist. Bladder blogs. (laughs) (laughs) This story's getting serious. I'm sorry. Okay, yes. Go. Okay. Okay, after he asks, Jessica, clean the bathroom? He's about to leave, and he's like, man, something just isn't right. Some, You know, like, where the hell is she? Because it's not closing time. Like, they're supposed to be open right now. Where is she? And he sees that the cash register is a little ajar. And so he calls police. And 
You can even hear on the 911 call, which we're not going to play. <laughs> you never include 911 calls. Me, I'm like, we're going to, and listen, <laughs> include 911 call. But even on the 911 call, he's like, yeah, so I'm at this gas station and like nobody's here, but I don't really know. And they're like, well, did you call out for him? You know, and he's like, yes, I asked if she was in the bathroom. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, where are they? You know, kind of thing. When police get there, they immediately treat this as foul play because just like that customer, they notice that things are bizarre. They too find Jessica's purse and car and the register ajar and again, no Jessica. The other thing that they find is out back about a two inch drop of blood and a battery cover to a laser sight of a handgun. So the police bring out the canine unit, and they find nothing. And of course, like I said, the owner is a cheap-ass motherfucker, so they have no CCTV footage. Police believe that Jessica was the focus of this kidnapping, because there was money left in the register and her wallet. And her car. True. Well, and like I said, you couldn't get into the gas station from the back door without being let in. So, was it someone she knew? Was she out back, like, smoking a cigarette, and someone came up on her? Did someone say they needed help, and she opened the door, and they kidnapped her? Did they hit her over the head with the gun, and that's what knocked the battery cover off, and that's what caused the blood on the ground? They didn't know. Couldn't they have come in from the front, and then, like, been like, hey, Jessica, blah, 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 blah. I mean, they could have, yes. And then, like, when they got back... There, she was like, oh, shit, no. And then they was like, bam. Well, I mean, yes, of course. Okay, just throwing my hat into the ring here. Police were able to take samples of the blood, but of course, that's going to take some time. They were able to pull footage from CCTV from the surrounding area. Like Thankfully. The, right, some stores and stuff. And they were able to spot, you guessed it, a silver van. More specifically, a silver town and country Chrysler van. But from there, it went nowhere because they lost it from the footage. Police then contacted the manager and the owner of the gas station to see, is there anything they need to know about the customers? Have there been problems, et cetera, et cetera. And the manager told them the story about the silver van and that... You know, her thinking that maybe stuff was being stolen, which obviously it wasn't because there was literally nothing missing. And But a human. Exactly. And that made police perk their ears up because a silver van. She goes on to say that she got a good look at everything and it was a silver town and country Chrysler van. And that it was a guy with like some curly or like crazy hair with like a red or an orange sweatshirt on, but that she was willing to go with a sketch artist to have them make up a sketch. So she got a pretty good look at whoever was driving the van. Police released a sketch, but not much came out of it. Very sus. (laughs) Like not surprised. Let's just be honest. Well, of course, when anyone's missing You have to start with the people that are closest to them. So they're going to look inward at the people around Jessica first. 
and that includes Dakota, her boyfriend. Well, his alibi for when she went missing is that he says he was at home with their son while she was at work. They only have one car. Jessica has a car, so stand to reason he's at home with the son with no way to go anywhere. However, he was up there earlier without a car. Right. Well, even if he was, none of them have a van, a silver van, much less a town and country van. Well, Jessica was a devout journaler. And her mom told Dakota to make sure that he gave the journals to police because they may be a good lead for police. You never know what someone's going through, no matter how well you think you know them. So after Jessica had been missing for some time and there were just no fucking leads, I mean, everywhere they turned, they were hitting these roadblocks and Jessica's mom was talking to one of the detectives. She asked if, did anything ever come of her journals? And the detective is like, what journals? What the fuck are you talking about? And she's like, Dakota never told you about the journals? And he's like, I, I don't know anything about journals. So he goes to Dakota to ask about these journals, fully expecting that he is going to be like, well, they were destroyed or oops, could never find them. Or I don't know what you're talking about. Like fully expecting one of those answers. But it wasn't. He was like, oh, cool. Here they are. And so police begin to read the journals and it starts to paint a very different picture of Jessica's and Dakota's relationship than what her family knew. Their relationship was not a good one. Everyone knew that they shared a car and a cell phone and they assumed it was to save money because they were financially struggling. But no, it was because Dakota wanted to keep an eye on her. He was financially abusing her is what that is. Like, let's call a spade a spade. That's fucking financial abuse. And if someone is forcing you to share a phone and a car so that they can keep tabs on you like that, that is the stepping stone to some serious abuse. Did they share a Facebook account? I don't know. Did they have the Dakota in Jessica? It's a telltale sign. Not of abuse. Of something going on, of distrust somewhere. But not abuse. No, I'm just saying of distrust. Okay. Well, the abuse didn't end there. According to Jessica's journals, there were times that Dakota was physically abusive. And Jessica wanted out, but she couldn't see a way out. So the journals put Dakota back on police's radar but the evidence just doesn't support it. There's nothing other than a rocky relationship that points to Dakota having anything to do with Jessica's disappearance. His cell phone records support his alibi that he was at home the whole time. So, I mean, yeah, could he have left his phone at home? Yes, but from what I understand, it was like being used at home. You know, it's not just like, oh, it was sitting at home. It was like pinging, you know? This is why you need to have nosy-ass friends like me, because if you were out there, like if you were Jessica, and you were like cleaning up the thing, and you talked to someone in a silver van, and I'd be like, she looks like she knows that person, but doesn't know that person, and you came back in, I'd be like, who was that you were talking to? What what were you talking about? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And like, at least it would be, even if she was like, it was a customer, or it was Dakota's friend, or it was whatever, yeah. like it would be something. Pays to be nosy sometimes. Yeah. 
A whole year goes by and police are no closer to solving where Jessica is or what happened to her. But then on June 29th, 2014, 911 gets a call that 36-year-old Rebecca Belch was found in the middle of a road and had been, according to the caller, would appear to have been hit by a car. When police get there, they quickly realize that she had not been hit by a car. Rebecca had been shot in the back of the head three times. She had bruises on her wrists, her hands, her back, and her legs. So what the fuck happened to Rebecca? Who the fuck is Rebecca? Exactly. And what does this have to do with Jessica? Well, literally... The only thing it has to do with Jessica is that it happened about 20 minutes from where she disappeared. So it kind of piqued the interest of her family and police, but there was really not a whole lot other than it was kind of close. So Rebecca had been out jogging when she was assaulted. And what we do know, because there's not a lot that I really found about Rebecca, but what we do know is that there were three 22 caliber shell casings found next to her body. There were some discrepancies I found online about when she died. Some articles said that when she was found, she was already dead. Some things said that when she was found, she had a very faint pulse and that she died like an hour after she went to the hospital. So some things, you know, some of the timeline stuff I'm not very sure about. But then that's it too. Rebecca's case goes cold. And then another two years go by. So now we're three years since Jessica's disappearance and two years since Rebecca's murder. When police finally get a break. A terrible fucking break, but nonetheless a break. A 16-year-old whose name we don't know because she's underage, so duh. She's out and about, and she gets lost, and she asks this guy for directions. And he's like, sure, I'll give you directions, but you got to get in for me to give them to you. And she's like, I don't know, but okay. She gets in, and he immediately pulls off and pulls out a gun. And she convinces him to, like, crack a window because she can't breathe, And then basically, like, a badass motherfucker, Mission Impossible style, jumps out of a moving car, gets away kind of thing. She goes to police and says, this happened. I can give you a description. Guess what? He drives a silver town and country van. Oh, and guess what? I can pick him out of a fucking lineup. So, insert fuckface Jeffrey Willis. So, Jeffrey Willis is this factory worker who had been in and out of jail for just some bullshit stuff. He is just a piece of shit all around that we don't like him. So, like, he was a um, a janitor at a school who lost his job for, like, watching porn on the school's computers. Like, shit like that. Like, ooh, You know? So police ended up getting search warrants for his van and his house. In his van, they find this locked toolbox 
that has video cameras, handcuffs with chains, a leather, well, a ball gag, rope, a pole, restraints, a pair of gloves, lube, a battery-powered sex toy, an empty prescription bottle. Some stuff said it was Viagra, some Polaroids, some different like names and addresses, just some other sex toys, some keys, and I'm not really sure what they were to. What in the toy box killer is going on? Right. Another thing, though, I saw said that they had found like sedative medication too, though. So I'm not really sure, you know, which was which, which was in his house versus in the car, that kind of thing. They also found a 22 caliber gun. Guess what? That gun matched the same gun that was used to kill Rebecca. So police are like, got him for fucking Rebecca. So they're not really thinking about, I mean, I'm sure they th- they're thinking about Jessica in the back of their minds, but when they see this gun and they see that the battery cover on the laser sight on that gun is fucking missing, they're like, ping! Wonder where he fucking lost that. Damn, son. Well, also, um, it's been a while. Get that replaced. Right. Dumbass. So they go to his house and fucking hit pay dirt, man. <laughs> on his computer, they find a folder labeled Vix on his computer. Dumbass. <laughs> so within the subfolders of Vix, they found subfolders with the initials for Rebecca and Jessica. They were supposedly cleverly named so that they had numbers that correlated with letters. So it was supposed to be more cryptic, but it like took police like two seconds to figure out. Okay, BTK. Right. God, people think they are so fucking clever. Mm-hmm. Like naming their podcast a paranormal chicks. I mean... Unless you're the fucking Zodiac killer that took them 50 fucking years to figure out the most, I mean, the most basic sentence. Right. I mean, not that I could figure it out, but it was like. Oh, for sure. Like you would think it was like this most like groundbreaking, like this is who I am. And it's like, it's cool if I die. (laughs) Well, old age got him. That's not what that sentence said at all. I'm just saying. They found a lot of downloaded, like, porn, but, like, murder porn. Some that was acted out and some that you could tell, like, wasn't acted out. And some of the files he had were, like, codes to get into websites of not acted out murder porn, you know? Like the dark, dark web. Yeah, the kind of shit that, um, uh uh-uh. I don't even want to know how to get to because... You know, I would probably trip and sneeze or something like that and <laughs> accidentally hit the wrong button and yeah. fucking world would end. Yes. The other thing was as police were investigating him, they realized that he was supposed to have gone back to work after Jessica's disappearance that night. Like he was on break and never went back that night and then missed the next few days. Dumbass. Mm-hmm. Did he match the manager's description? Yeah. All right, I take it back. 
There was another person in between this that was a serial killer that they thought had been the person who had kidnapped and murdered Jessica that kind of looked like the sketch, but it just didn't work out that ended up dying basically by police assisted suicide that they never could, they just never could nail it down and it just never felt right. And some other podcasts really go into that kind of detail more because there's a lot and I'll go over that a little bit more anyway, but he really did look more like it. Jeffrey Willis ends up getting charged with child pornography, the attempted kidnapping of the 16 year old and the murder of Rebecca Bletch. But since they still don't have Jessica's body, it's like, do they charge him with this? Well, enter Kevin Blum. So Kevin is Jeffrey Willis's cousin. And he is a former Michigan Department of Corrections prison guard. He goes to police and he says, okay. So one day, Jeffrey calls me and he says, hey, I've got this girl at my grandfather's house and we're going to party. Do you want to come over? And he was like, sure. He says, I get over there and she's laying face down on the bed and she's like tied up and she's got a wound on her head. It's kind of bleeding and she kind of looked dead already. So I was like, man, no, I don't want to be a part of this. So like I helped him just like get rid of the body. And then he's like, no, man, I'm just kidding to police. The fuck? Yeah. So police were like, the fuck? And so... At first, they end up charging him just with lying to police. And he gets, like, time served, some bullshit. Then they end up charging him with accessory after the fact. He still gets time served because he was continued to be in jail after that. And then five years probation. And then he has to wear a GPS monitor for a year. He was sentenced on January 2018. So, which means he should be done with the GPS monitor you know, by 2019-ish. So he's still on probation. I don't know. Did they think he was just going to, like, go to some random body place? I don't know. Some There was some witnesses that said that, like, they thought that maybe Jessica was buried at this cabin and that they had taken cadaver dogs out there because they had seen Jeffrey there, like, with some shovels, but the dogs never recovered anything. But Jeffrey Willis was found guilty of Rebecca Bletch's murder and the kidnapping and murder of Jessica Haringa. So he is serving like two life without parole sentences in Michigan. But he's never told them where the body of Jessica is. No. We, so her family has gotten, I mean, closure for the shit word that closure is as far as he's convicted of it because, you know, I mean, he did it. But, no, there's no body. But he did show, I mean, not that, you know, this whole case doesn't show his true colors, but he just, during the trial, you know, some of their arguments were just so shitty and just so, like, victim-blamey and shitty and just dragging, trying to drag Jessica's name through the mud and all of that because apparently Jessica had been doing some heroin. And so he was saying, like, well, you don't know that it was my silver van coming to see her. Like it could have been somebody bringing her heroin or 
coming to get her because of her heroin. You know, like she owed them drug money or whatever in a silver van. You don't know that it was mine kind of thing. And so it just, it was very victim blamey and inappropriate. And it's just been such a hard road for her family after because Dakota had some hard time with, like he had a a drug arrest for marijuana, but he had a drug arrest And Jessica's sister had a pretty long custody battle to get custody of Jessica's son because I I think Dakota was going through a lot. And, I mean, hello, there was obviously some domestic violence going on, too. So, I mean, you never know the inner workings of whatever. We'll never know the whole story of anything. But it was just this long custody battle and all of that. And so I I just want them to have some closure. Some I hate that word, but you know what I mean. Some peace. Maybe that's the better word. But I will say there has been a little bit of good to come out of it. There's been some legislation in the works called the Jessica Haringa Act or Jessica's Law that as of March of 2020, the small businesses have still been fighting. But anyway, it's to require like gas stations and stuff like that to have CCTVs. But Small businesses are fighting it because it also called for stores that are open between the hours of 11 and 5 to have two employees on shift during those hours. So, some of the, like, it excluded some businesses like hotels, taverns, restaurants, pharmacies, grocery stores, supermarkets. But anyway, so that's kind of still in the works. But the one that I really liked was Rebecca's Law that Michigan passed in 2018 because, so... Jeffrey fucking Willis is such a piece of shit that when it became time for the victim impact statements, he like asked to go back to his cells because he didn't want to listen. And so they passed a law that they have to stay and listen now. Hell yes. Yes. So I just was like, fuck yes. He's a bitch. (laughs) Right. Like, fuck him. So this is a pretty big story that I covered. I mean, like there's like a ton, but there are some shows and podcasts that go into a little more detail. So I'm going to tell you a few of those in case you want it to some more information. Jessica's case was featured on Unsolved Mysteries and disappeared on Investigation Discovery in 2015 and 2016, respectively. But I feel like there's been some stuff that has happened. Like Jeffrey Willis was arrested like literally the week after it aired on Disappeared. So, like, there's been closure since those episodes. And then there was a three-part episode on Vanished, the podcast. Jensen and Holes, the Murder Squad, covered it. And Crime Junkie covered it. So, anyway. So, there's, there's like, a few... There's a few... You know, it's always nice to see... To hear different takes on the same stories, I think, at least. Yeah, definitely. I, I really like this story. Mm-hmm. I can't now... After, I don't know, my brain. But I was thinking this during your story. The Mm 16-year-old, you're thinking, oh, my God, she got in his van. But if you think about it, she's lost. So she he knows she's lost. She's she's fucked either way. Like, you can only run so much, but if you're lost, you're lost. Thankfully, he fucked up with the 16-year-old, and he was able to be caught from that. Yeah. Because with the other two, I mean, he he was 
on the start of being potentially a very prolific serial killer. Yeah. And wasn't going to be caught. I mean, they had nothing. I mean, they literally had nothing on him for, for either one of those cases. I'd like to say thanks to the uh, store owner, the gas station owner. Mm-hmm. Like, they could have had something. Well, I mean, why do you think that he chose Jessica? I mean, other than, obviously, her. But, I mean, the convenience of where she worked with no security cameras, mm-hmm. that played a big part in it, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. It's just so sad. All of them are so sad. that Her body hasn't been found. It's so sad. Mm-hmm. Well, these are two super sad stories for the episode to say, you know, we hope you have a happy holiday this week. Yep. Merry Christmas, however you celebrate the day. And remember, creep it real and and don't don't get scared. scared.